Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Podcast. This is your host, Agnes. And today I'm joined by Stephen Bevan. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Stephen is the head of HR R&D at the Institute of Employment Studies. And he's done a number of uh, research around mental health at work and musculoskeletal conditions at work and, and also was leading a national and international coalition called Fit for Work, um, which we're going to be um, talking about a little bit later, and also talking about mental health and well-being and sickness and sickness absence at work. So I'm so thrilled and and really, really pleased to have you, Stephen, on, on the podcast. So may I ask you to start off by asking you to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, about your career and what triggered your interest in these issues that you're researching? Yeah, okay. Um, I've been working in this area for um, probably 20 years or so. Um, and my background is as an organizational psychologist. So I've been interested for a while in what motivates people at work um, and how their attitudes and their motivations translate into, into behavior. Um, and if you're an employer, you're obviously interested in how that behavior manifests itself as performance and uh, retention and so on. But I started to focus a little bit more on the issue of um, what the psychological factors underpinning sickness absence from work were a few years ago. And that's led me down the route of doing quite a lot of uh, research and also policy work, um, both nationally and internationally, on, on sickness absence, um, health and well-being of the workforce, and eventually how the health of the workforce affects both quality of life, but also productivity. Excellent. So would you like to maybe um, elaborate a little bit about this European project that you were leading on, the Fit for Work Coalition? Yes, I think um, one of the things that's very interesting is that um, we have a number of different factors across Europe um, which are beginning to affect the health of the workforce. Um, one challenge, of course, is that in most European countries we have an ageing workforce uh, and in some ways that makes uh, older workers um, slightly more susceptible to certain health conditions and, and things like musculoskeletal conditions, so conditions of the bones and joints and so on, um, tend to, to be worse amongst older workers. There are some exceptions to that. Um, but obviously that has a big impact on both employers and on national 
productivity and performance. So we were looking uh, at, in this project at what the impact of muscular conditions were on absence from work, lost productivity, perhaps even premature um, retirement, early retirement as well. So in 2007, um, we began project looking at the impact of musculoskeletal conditions on, on work uh, and looking particularly at sickness absence from work. Uh, when you look at the, the, the health related causes of sickness absence from work across Europe, musculoskeletal conditions and mental health are the two biggest factors. They account for something in excess of 70% of all the sickness absence um, that we experience across most European member states. Um, and so one of the things that we were looking at was the extent to which um, you know, the, the conditions of the bones and joints um, amongst uh, European workers uh, were beginning to have a, a damaging impact, impact on productivity. And as, as the workforce across Europe ages, um, more older workers are becoming more susceptible to some musculoskeletal conditions such as, for example, arthritis, but also back pain and so on. And of course, as we all have to work longer and retire later, um, this is going to become an issue not just for employers, but also for uh, governments, because things like healthcare costs and social welfare costs and so on, social insurance costs. So we looked at um, these issues in something like 25 EU member states, including Belgium, Germany, France, Spain, um, and so on. We didn't look at Cyprus and Malta and Luxembourg, but pretty much every other member state and indeed some other European countries like Norway um, and so on. And what we found was that um, the, the, the challenge of musculoskeletal conditions in the working age population is not well recognised, it's not well managed. Um, we don't find that doctors, for example, think about work as an outcome potentially for people suffering from musculoskeletal conditions. And we find that employers are not doing very much in terms of prevention um, and they're not really focusing very much on helping people return back to the work very quickly as a result of um, their conditions and the rehabilitation they get. So um, across the whole of the European Union, musculoskeletal conditions cost about 240 billion euros a year, which is about 2% of the GDP of the European Union. And they account for about 50% of all sickness absence that lasts more than three days. So it is a big issue and it represents a significant uh, burden both on employers and on national governments. This is absolutely uh, fascinating. And did you um, look at a, a variety of sectors um, from sectors where people do physical work or those where it's more standing or more sitting? Yes, um, there are big differences between sectors. Um, I think um, logically what you might assume is that because far fewer people now are doing heavy manual work um, that the incidence of musculoskeletal conditions would be less. Um, but what right. we do find is that people working, for example, in office jobs um, or jobs where they're not getting much physical exercise uh, are more susceptible to conditions, for example, of the neck and the shoulders and the, the upper arms. Um, we find if you look at, uh, for example, the European Working Conditions Survey, which is conducted by the, the Dublin Foundation, uh, which is part of DG Employment, um, their data shows uh, across the whole of the European Union that actually there's some occupational groups, particularly office-based jobs, where the incidence of certain musculoskeletal conditions is increasing, you know, particularly where people are exposed to um, regular 
the rapid or repetitive movements that put strain on their their upper bodies and their necks and their shoulders and so on. So despite the fact that we're not doing so much, you know, heavy industry and manufacturing, um, the incidence of musculoskeletal conditions is still quite high. It's particularly high in construction. Um, it's also high in the health sector where you have nurses and other mm-hmm. other um, um, healthcare uh, professions who are um, exposed to lifting and so on. Um, so it is still a big issue. And just to give you an example, in the UK in, in 2014, which is the latest data we have, we lost 31 million working days to musculoskeletal conditions. And if you compare that to the highest ever year of industrial action that we ever had, which is 1978-79, that was 29 million working days. So it is a big issue. Um, and it's one that's getting the attention it needs from policymakers or employers. No, absolutely. And, and uh, well, thank you very much for clarifying. I think I was doing it and I think most of the listeners are going to be all of a sudden sitting up straight <laughs> listening to you and just very being good. aware of, 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 of their posture. And I, I was just, you know, also thinking while you were speaking that media um, and the news, when, it, when we look at the changing world of work and the workforce is full of the millennials and mm. young people, young people, but there, but there's very, very little mention of the aging workforce, the aging population. And it's, it's, this problem seems to be almost like a silent issue that is creeping up on governments and also employers that, that somehow is not, not recognized as, mm. as you said, as something that needs intervention, that needs, um, and, and also I was you know, just thinking, and, and then you also said it, that basically it, it could be an interesting um, area where employers and, and by that also private companies could play a part in prevention of yeah. the public costs, right? Absolutely. Um, I think you're right that the older workers issue is something that um, is is not so visible, um, but is a big issue. Um, so I was speaking to my daughter yesterday. She's just graduated from university, so she's starting out in the world of work. And I said to her, statistically, you realise that you're probably going to have to work for another 50 years before you can retire, um, which which didn't make her very happy, as you can imagine. But the the, the notion that we will all have to work till we're 70. Um, in order to, for, for governments just to accept, um, to, you know, to be able to have the, uh, the, the ability to pay pensions and so on, is something which is horrifying for many workers at the moment, particularly as they began their careers expecting to retire perhaps when they were 60 uh, or 65. Now, the other thing that happens, of course, is that although we've had fantastic medical advances that enable us to, to live longer, um, the real truth is that we're, we're living longer but less healthily. Um, and so we have a growing burden of what you call might call chronic health conditions, uh, long-term health conditions that begin to affect us, particularly in the latter, um, you know, third of our careers. And so I think that, that this is a societal problem that we need to think about, um, because by the time people get to 65 or 70, the chances of them having at least one health condition that, at least for part of the time, affects their ability to work effectively, uh, is increasing massively. Now, I think back to your point about um, prevention, I think there are things that employers can do. Uh, Clearly, there are some things that employers have no influence over. If someone develops cancer or has a heart condition or develops 
rheumatoid arthritis or some other you know um, disease um, their responsibility is to help that, that individual remain productive at work wherever possible um, I think there are things that can be done uh, in organizations to help prevent both musculoskeletal conditions and indeed mental health conditions by the way that work is organized, the ways that jobs are designed, the way that people's workstations are designed and so on. So you talked about posture and, and ergonomics, I guess. Um, but also uh, what we, we're increasingly beginning to call the psychosocial work environment. Yeah. So how, you know, workload, pressure, deadlines, how much autonomy people have, how much control they have over their jobs, and ultimately how well they're managed at work. Um, and the research is now pointing very, very clearly uh, to aspects of the way that people are managed at work, which are beginning to have either a damaging or indeed a positive impact on their ability uh, to, to remain healthy and productive at work. And uh, I also would maybe mention here the, the, the organization of work, because um, what, you know, we at the Work Life Hub, we look at um, flexible working hours and, and flexibility in general. Mm. And if employers could kind of go to the final frontier of uh, work-life balance, which is to have legitimate private time during mm. the so-called workday, if they could use some of that time to take care of themselves, to go to an osteopath or, or go for a walk or go for uh, a, a swimming or whatever, um, you know, that, that could really prolong also the this employer-employment relationship. So um, the, 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 am I assuming uh, correctly? Is this something that um, you also see in, in terms of policy or, or workplace recommendations? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, it's pretty clear. And if you, I guess if you think back to my daughter and working for 50 years, yeah. um, you know, the, your ability to work intensively for that period of time um, and productively you know, in full-time permanent roles um, is, is impossible over 50 years. And I think there's a growing awareness that you know, during people's life cycle, their needs vary enormously. You know, if they need a career break in order to, you know, to bring up children or if they're looking after elderly relatives or if they want to do some you know, additional learning and so on, um, it's very clear that many, many employees want some flexibility to enable them to, to manage both their, their career goals, but also their domestic goals and responsibilities. And I think it's pretty clear evidence that if employers are flexible and allow individuals to have more, more control over their working time in a way that it doesn't damage the business, but is good for the, the individual and indeed the employment relationship, um, then people's physical and mental health is better. Uh, their productivity and their engagement and their motivation is better. Yeah, absolutely. And But I find also that still it seems that, um, as you said, taking a break or uh, off-ramping for caring for children mm. or caring for elderly has absolutely um, become uh, the norm. It is something that is discussed, so caring for others. But I wanted to also explore with you a little bit this idea of sickness or health conditions at work. And mm. that links, of course, to taking time off for self-care. Um, yes. Would you uh, agree also that, that, you know, employees, especially if, if you know, they're changing, if, if uh, in the old model you would stay with the same employer for 25 mm. years, I yeah. think that there you had this kind of 
more intimate relationship to speak about your ups and downs in your life. But as we're changing mm. work every five, six years, or even more often, we always want to fit into this perfect worker ideal. So there to, to speak about these issues, I find, um, and I'm asking you to, what is mm. your take on this, is, is maybe a bit more sensitive. It may be. I think, um, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think that there is still an anxiety amongst many uh, employees particularly if they are starting a new job, to disclose that they themselves might, might have a health issue um, that will need some attention or support, or that they have um, others in their family, for example, uh, who they need to look after or you know, may require some additional time or at least some flexibility. Um, in, it, I think in some ways this goes also a little bit with the economic cycle. Um, I think that, um, just to take the UK as an example, um, that in the last few years, obviously, with the economic crisis and growing unemployment and so on, um, it's, for many employers, they've had the advantage in the sense that they've had a surplus of labour and they've been able to pick and choose who they want to come and work for them. Um, and that's made things like, um, you know, sickness absence, for example, in, in the UK, uh, come down a little bit because people have been very worried about having too much sickness absence because yeah. it might mean that their, their jobs are insecure. But in the UK, we're lucky enough to have had something of a, a growth in um, the economy and uh, a reduction in unemployment to the point now where employers are much more worried that they're not going to, going to be able to get access to the highly skilled people that need and they're increasingly reporting that they're suffering from skill shortages and recruitment difficulties now we see in that part of the cycle every time it happens that employers are suddenly much more sympathetic to people's domestic caring responsibilities their need to take time off to look after themselves if they've got a health problem and so on because they are they're, they're suffering from labor shortages now that may employers seem very cynical and I'm sure that's not the case in ev in every situation but you do certainly see in this, this certainly the stage we're at in the UK a growing interest in helping employees to accommodate both their health conditions and um, their caring responsibilities and therefore employers are much more amenable to the idea of offering flexible working and, and greater flexibility of contracts and working time for people. But this only concerns one part of the workforce knowing this hourglass mm. shape it's 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 the top the top half of of the yep. skilled right so it's that's what we we also um very um concerned about that you know this is not something that's across uh workforce seen as a right uh, yep. but, but really for the privileged yeah I, I agree with that i think that's something um which is a, raises some wider questions, I think. I cert we certainly in the UK have seen the development of this hourglass labour market with a growth in jobs at the top um, amongst the highly skilled and highly qualified, a growth in the jobs at the bottom amongst people perhaps who are less skilled or perhaps in more precarious employment contracts, and then a hollowing out in the middle of people in sort of inter with intermediate skills. And I think you're right, the, the sort of psychological contract and the degree of flexibility available to the people in the top half of the hourglass is very much linked to their labour market power, uh, their scarcity and so on. And I think increasingly in the bottom half of the, the hourglass, we're seeing more and more people on zero hours contracts or temporary contracts. Um, and whilst the situation in the UK, for example, we talk about this a lot, 
Um, I'm also aware that in other countries like Spain, for example, um, you know, the, there is a, a, an increasing problem of precariousness and uh, casualization in the workforce. And of course, it means that if you're at that bottom end of the labor market, your bargaining power is less um, and employers have less motivation to offer you flexibility um, or um, to be sympathetic to your needs for health care and, um, you know, to, to perhaps have workplace accommodations if you have a a disability or a long-term health condition. Um, so, what, just picking up on, on an earlier point that you made about um, employees and workers having at least one um, chronic condition towards the mm. last third of their um, of their working lives, and and we know mm. that uh, because of the aging population, this is also the the segment of the workforce population that is going to have to care for someone else uh, with uh, a disability or or, mm. or an illness. So. I just would like to maybe tease out a little bit what your thoughts are on, on policy and what the role of policy uh, makers would be now and, and whether this mm. is a kind of a, a, a real, um, I mean, ticking time bomb is maybe a bit of a mm. stronger, uh, but, but as we are still recovering from the crisis and, mm. and, you know, there's a lot of focus still on growth and competitivity. I mean, if we mm. don't tackle this aspect, uh, coupled together, they they don't promise too well, right? That's right. I mean, I think the the picture is a little bit different across Europe, obviously, because yeah. we've got uh, different rates of um, recovery from the the crisis, and um, we've still got you know, quite high levels of unemployment and long term unemployment in different parts of the uh, of the European Union. So, um, you know, I, I know I keep referring to the UK, but that's the area, that's the country I know best, obviously. But I, I'm aware from the other European work that we've done, that the picture is different. I mean, I think, um, obviously, that this also gets into the issue of labour market flexibility, and whether or not, you know, labour market regulation um, is either a good or a bad thing. And this is clearly a big issue currently in France. Um, and um, it's something that in the UK, we went through a few years ago. Uh, I do think that the, the, the policy does play a part here. Um, we've recently in the UK extended our right to request legislation, for example, to everybody. So um, for a few years, we had the right for people who had caring responsibilities for children under seven, I think it was, uh, to be able to request from their employer that they were able to work more flexibly. So to renegotiate their contracts of employment, um, to work part time or to work you know, more flexible working hours. Um, and the onus on the, was on the employer to say why they shouldn't agree to this. So it meant that uh, lots of people got access to flexible working. And what we've done recently, just in the last couple of years, is extended that right to everybody in the workforce. Now, I think that um, that's not a perfect policy because um, we don't know how many people would like flexibility but are too, too frightened to ask their employer. We do have data about how many do ask, and we reckon about 80% who ask um, get a positive response. So I think that policy has the opportunity here to um, encourage a positive dialogue between employees and their employers so they can come to an accommodation. Um, the, the challenge, I think, is for the employee to be able to say um, to the employer, Look, I'd like to work this alternative working pattern, uh, but this is how the work will get done. And I'm conscious that you as the employer still want to have 
high levels of productivity and so on. So it requires a mature dialogue. Mm. Sometimes that can be moderated through the social partnership process and the role of trade unions in this, I think, can be very positive too. Um, but I do think it's the role of policy to facilitate greater flexibility and choice in a way where there's mutual advantage for both the employer and the employee. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much for, for clarifying that. And before we go to our last question, where uh, we would be tackling um, perhaps what employers can do, may I just ask you, Stephen, if you could uh, tell listeners uh, where they can reach you, how they can contact you, where they find uh, information about the work you're doing? Uh, of course, yeah. Um, well, I'm working at the Institute for Employment Studies in the UK, which is um, you can find on the internet. The, the website address is www.employment-studies.co.uk um, and you can find my email address on that website too. And I'm also um, fairly active on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is at Stephen Bevan, that's Stephen with a PH. Thank you so much. So coming to the, the, but we will of course put these also into the notes of the podcast. So coming to the last question, which is always the same here on the work-life podcast, if I could ask you, and what advice would you give to general managers or CEOs um, to pay attention to these issues that we just discussed and, and make a positive impact on the well-being and health of their workforce? What, what would be your advice? Um, well, I, a, we did a piece of work in our National Health Service here in the UK and we asked people, what could your employer do to improve your health and well-being at work? And they didn't say, give us fruit bowls <laughs> or, or give us access to gym membership or Pilates classes. They said, um, treat us like adults, tell us what's going on, involve us in decisions that affect our future. Um, and give us more control and autonomy in our jobs. Um, and I think there's an interesting message there for uh, general managers, chief executives, that all the things we know from all the research that improve the morale and the motivation and the performance of employees, um, particularly around the way they're managed and their jobs are designed and so on, also have really positive benefits for engagement and well-being at work. So I don't think that you need to be, uh, as a general manager, uh, uh, an amateur doctor. Mm. Um, you, you have to be um, sympathetic and empathetic towards the needs of your employees, particularly as they change during their life cycle. Um, and we know that positive um, and inclusive workplaces are also healthy and productive. Fantastic. Wonderful. Thank you so much um, for putting it really so well-roundedly, if, if that's a word, um, because I, I just see this is something that is definitely emerging from all the research and all the podcast episodes as well, that um, these uh, levers that employees can pull is, is you know, listening and, and autonomy and self-management and respect, they're actually beneficial on everything, on the health, on the morale, on productivity, on effectiveness, on reputation. So it all comes together very nicely and, and I think you have formulated it really, really nicely. So thank you very much. And thank you very much, Stephen, for coming on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed um, talking to you and, and I'm sure that the listeners got away a lot of knowledge from your experience and wealth of, of, of knowledge. Well, thank you for asking me. <laughs>